It's pneumonia that Abby has, not uh, a cold, but I appreciate you mentioning it. It, it, did, uh, it did remind me of an old joke about a fellow who has a cold and he just can't seem to shake it. Because, of course, there's no cure for the cold. And he keeps going back to the doctor, going back, and they can't do anything to get rid of it. And finally, the doctor says, well, you know, there's going to be a rainstorm tonight. I want you to go out and stand in the rain for an hour. And the guy says, are you crazy? I'll get pneumonia. And the doctor said, I know, we can cure pneumonia. <laughs> so maybe she's better off with that than a really bad cold. Who knows? I'm confident she'll be okay, but I appreciate your prayers. Tonight we're going to talk about the Apostle Andrew. And Andrew might be my favorite of the Apostles' lives to study. I don't know if you've ever... Uh, thought about his life too much, but I hope you find this study as beneficial as I do. And I was going to begin by reading our text that we had written down anyway, so it, it's all right that we haven't read that yet. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. That's how the New Testament introduces to us one of the most noble characters that we encounter in all of the Gospel record. Andrew is one of those men who we might regard as great if it weren't for one small thing. He is completely and totally overshadowed by the dazzling greatness of his brother, Simon Peter. And in fact, the way that he's introduced here, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, that's not atypical. He's introduced that way frequently in the gospel accounts. And I bet he was introduced that way in real life, too. And you know, I bet he got tired of being introduced that way. I, I can picture it if we put it in our contemporary context. Somebody brings Andrew to services one Sunday morning, and uh, maybe it's a friend of ours that uh, knows him, a mutual friend. He introduces us. I'd like you to meet Brother Andrew. And he's just this mild-mannered, unassuming fellow. We politely nod. You know, How are you doing? It's nice to meet you. We're not that interested in it. And our mutual friend sees that and says, you know, Andrew is Simon Peter's brother. Oh, Simon Peter, the Simon Peter? Well, I, I know all about him. You know, I heard him preach over in Jerusalem once. What, what's he really like? I can imagine that that was basically the story of Andrew's life. He probably heard that everywhere he went. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, never preached to multitudes as far as we know. He never asked a particularly profound question, at least not one that's been left recorded for us. He never wrote an epistle. We don't know what, if any, churches that he founded. As far as we know, he never did anything particularly daring or particularly heroic. And yet, yet, Andrew is 
precisely the type of person that every church must have if that church is going to be successful. Because nearly every time that we encounter Andrew in Scripture, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. I don't know if you ever realize that or not, but just about every time we read about Andrew in detail, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. And that's the greatest thing that anyone can do. And so we said that if it weren't for Peter that Andrew might be regarded as a great man. Well, you know what? In God's sight, he is regarded as a great man because he brought people to Jesus. We read here in John chapter 1, Andrew and Peter were both originally from the small village of Bethsaida. But at some point, we find in Mark chapter 1, they relocated nearby to the larger city of Capernaum. Capernaum was ideally situated on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, which was the best fishing area. You know that Peter and Andrew were fishermen. So this was a great place for them to have their business. And they probably were lifelong friends of another pair of fishing brothers who were originally from Capernaum, Peter and, or, uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. These four men, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, formed the inner circle of the twelve apostles. But of those four, Andrew is easily the least conspicuous. You know, sometimes Jesus takes all four of them aside separately from the rest of the apostles. So we find, for example, that Andrew's there present with those others when Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law in Mark chapter 1. Andrew's there present, too, in Mark chapter 13 when Jesus delivers his discourse about the destruction of the temple. But at other times, you know this, Andrew isn't there. It's just Peter, James, and John. He's excluded from that inner circle. We looked at Jesus raising Jairus' daughter from the dead this morning. He takes Peter, James, and John alone into the house to do that. It's Peter, James, and John who are there at the transfiguration. It's Peter, James, and John who are there in the garden, asked to watch and pray. So while Andrew is part of that inner group, he's also not part of the innermost group. He's somewhere in between. Andrew constantly lived his life in the shadow of his older brother and then of his two close friends, James and John. And I would think that it would be really easy for a person to resent that after a while. But, you know, we never find anything like that associated with Andrew. And in fact, it seems that he was the type of person who was ideally suited for effective ministry in the background. He didn't need any sort of glory. He didn't need attention to be brought to himself. He was pleased to do what he could do with the gifts that God gave him. And he excelled with the responsibilities that were given to him. And that's what we want to think about for a, a few minutes tonight. What was the role that God gave to Andrew? What gifts did he have? What made him so useful and ultimately made him, as we said, a great man? 
First of all, Andrew valued people. He valued people. Here in John chapter 1, when Andrew meets Jesus, he's already a disciple of John the Baptist. Andrew and John, later the apostle, John the writer of the gospel. Andrew and John were there standing beside John the Baptist when Jesus passed by, verse 36. And John looked at Jesus as he, as he walks by and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. So Andrew and John hear that, and in verse 37 we see they immediately left and they followed Jesus to see what he was all about. That's not a betrayal of John. Of course, John the Baptist's ministry was all about pointing to the one who was to come, pointing to the Messiah, right? He made that clear repeatedly. And Andrew must have been caught up in that same expectation. He was looking for the Messiah to come. So when John says, there he is, well, immediately he wants to go and follow him and see if he really is who John the Baptist claims he is. So Andrew goes and he spends the rest of the day with him. And he left convinced that he had found the Messiah. So note that. Andrew, along with John, but Andrew becomes Jesus' first disciple. But then I want you to know the very first thing that he does. Notice this. We read it already. Verse 41. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. That good news was just too good for him to keep for himself. And so the very first thing that he did was to find the person that he loved most, the person he most wanted to come to know Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Now that there is Andrew in a nutshell. That sums up the entirety of his ministry. He was always bringing people to Jesus. Flip to John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, we read about some Greeks who came to the apostle Philip wanting to see Jesus. Presumably they'd heard about him and they wanted to have the opportunity to meet him. So in verse 21, they come to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, for whatever reason, Philip had no idea what to do with that request. And so in verse 22, Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Philip took these men to Andrew, and he let Andrew take them to Jesus. Now, I don't know what was going on with Philip here. I don't know if he was just timid by nature. I don't know if the request caught him off guard and he was just flustered and confused. But what we want to focus on is that he knew that Andrew would know exactly what to do. He knew that in a situation like this, people want to meet Jesus. Well, Andrew is the one that I need to take them to see. Andrew was never confused when someone wanted to see Jesus. He introduced them. He took them to meet him. This concern with individuals is so important. I don't think we can emphasize this enough. Most people, 
99.99999% of people, that's a conservative estimate, are not going to be converted just because they listen to a sermon. I can basically guarantee that no one's ever going to come wandering off the street here, sit on a pew, listen to me for the first time, and they're going to be hit as if by a lightning bolt. They're going to be convicted, and they're going to come down to the front. Now, I'm not under any uh, illusions about my own greatness or anything, but not only am I nothing special, but that doesn't really matter who we have in the pulpit. We could have the greatest preacher in the world up here, any great name from the past that you can think of, and most people are not going to be converted simply because they've come and they've listened to a sermon. They come because of a relationship. They've come because someone, one-on-one, -on -one, has established that line of communication with them, that dialogue, and they've invited them to Jesus. And I'll, I'll say this. We might think that that's something pretty ordinary, pretty commonplace, pretty humdrum. But if you have that gift, like Andrew, to just be able to invite people to Jesus, friends, family members, or even if you're the type that can just go up to people and make friends out of the blue and talk to them about Jesus, don't think that that's insignificant. That is a tremendous gift that God has given you. I'll tell you right now, my own experience. You know, some people will say, I, I could never get up in front of an audience and preach. I would much rather this building be filled to capacity and talk to 500 people. That's about what this would hold, I expect, if everybody was all scrunched up. I would much rather preach to 500 people personally than to have to go to a stranger one-on-one, -on -one, like Andrew does here with these Greeks, and talk to them about Jesus because I'm not comfortable in that situation. I've been here about six months now. You might have picked up on that already. Uh, I've loosened up some. I get to know you, and I talk more, but I naturally am not an extrovert. It takes me a while to know what to say to people. I don't know what to do with people I don't know yet. So if you do, that's a great gift. Don't fail to appreciate the way that God has gifted you if you're like Andrew and can just, in an ordinary, everyday way, bring people to Jesus. And by the way, this is important too, this is especially true of younger people. A lot of different research increasingly shows that younger people are not going to be convinced with the old ways of preaching. That is where we lay out a logical case, fact by fact, inferences, uh, deduction. They're not convinced by that. They're not modern. They're postmodern. That is, they're not focused on the logical. They're focused on the relational. They want to be able to experience Jesus. They want to know that you know Jesus, and they want to be a part of that too. So if you're that type of person, you have a, a real opportunity, and I want you to, to take advantage of that because this is a, a great gift, something that Andrew shows us was important in his day, and I'm telling you that it's not only as important for us, it's maybe more important for us than it ever has been. So Andrew valued people. Secondly, he valued the small things. 
We see this really clearly in John's account of the feeding of the 5,000. This is over in John chapter 6. Jesus had gone up to a mountain to be sort of secluded with his disciples, and as we see so often in the gospel accounts, suddenly a crowd appeared on the scene again. And it was getting to be just about time to eat, and these people were hungry, they needed to be fed, and so Jesus asks Philip in verse number 5, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, we're going to talk about Philip in a few weeks, but incidentally, I don't know why poor Philip seems to be the foil in so many of these uh, stories. But he asked Philip, where are we going to get bread for these people? Now, John's quick to add in verse number 6 that Jesus already was in control of the situation. He knew what he was going to do. He asked this to, to test Philip. Philip quickly calculated that there was no way they had enough money on hand to be able to buy enough food for all of these people. Eight months' worth of wages wouldn't be enough. Matthew's parallel account of this story, Matthew chapter 14, it says that the disciples said, send them away. They need to go out into the villages to be able to buy food. But Jesus says there, no, you give them something to eat. Now, from a human perspective, that seems completely unreasonable. Where in the world are they going to get enough food to even begin to feed these people? And it's here that Andrew speaks up in verse number 9. There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now, by the way, here's Andrew bringing someone to Jesus again. He introduces this boy to him. Here's a boy. Andrew knew, of course, that even that wasn't enough. You know, he adds there, boy with five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? But Jesus had commanded his disciples to feed the people. And so Andrew went and tried to make a start on that. He did the best that he could do. He found the only source of food that was available, and he did what was typical for him. He brought that to Jesus. Jesus, of course, we all know, turned those loaves and those two fish into a feast that fed everyone. But the point of this is, no gift, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is truly insignificant when it's placed in the hands of Jesus. He can use so little to accomplish so much. And that's a testament to his power. That is, that it's not about us. It's about him. It's not the greatness of the gift that counts. It's the greatness of the God to whom it's given. And I think that somehow, Andrew seemed to just intuitively understand that. He set the stage for this miracle. And it reminds us that God takes those small things, those things that we give sacrificially, those things that we think are, are so unimportant. But he can take those gifts that we give him freely, and he can use them to accomplish his purpose and accomplish great things. Third and, and finally, Andrew was great because he valued inconspicuous service. You know, some people won't play in the orchestra unless they can be the first violin. James and John were kind of like that, weren't they? We're going to look at them over the next two weeks, but they're always arguing, those two in particular, about which one's going to be the greatest among the apostles. 
We looked at Peter last week. He's kind of like that too. Peter has to be number one. He's the leader. He's always out front. But we don't see that with Andrew. We see some of these disputes among the apostles, and yes, sometimes they're named collectively, but Andrew specifically is never mentioned as featuring in these debates. In fact, we never see Andrew saying anything at all unless it's about bringing someone to Jesus, what we've seen repeatedly tonight. So Andrew is a picture of all of those who serve God humbly in quiet places, not seeking any sort of recognition for themselves. He wasn't an impressive pillar like Peter, like James, like John, but he was a small stone in the foundation. You know, as Paul says, the apostles are the foundation of the church, with Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Andrew's one of those rare people who was more than willing to be in a support role. He didn't care about getting any credit. He just wanted to see that the work was done, and he did the best he could to go about accomplishing that. And I think many Christians, all of us in one way or another, would do well to learn from that example of Andrew. You know, Scripture tells us repeatedly that we ought not to be in the business of seeking prominent roles. Jesus says, Mark chapter 9 and verse 35, if anyone desires to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. Of course, he says in the next chapter of his own mission, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that he came not to be served, but to serve. If we want to be like him, we'll be servants too. We won't seek the glory for ourselves. We won't try to be in first place. Most everyone wants to be like Peter. We want to be prominent. We want to be the leader. We want to be number one. We want everyone looking to us, and we want to be the ones who are out front getting the credit. But I want you to remember this. Without Andrew, there'd be no Peter. Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. And so in that sense, Andrew had a part in everything that Peter did. Preaching that sermon on Pentecost, taking the gospel to the Gentiles, all of the churches that he worked to establish, Andrew was part of that. And I think that one day, when we stand before God and when all of the accounts are finally settled, we'll find out that a lot of people who seem to labor in obscurity, who seemed to be inconspicuous, we never took any notice of what they did, actually rendered to God the greatest and highest service of all. We need to thank God for people like Andrew. And we need to strive to be people like Andrew because Andrew shows us that in serving God, the little things count. The individual lives the insignificant gifts, the inconspicuous service. God delights in using things like that. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he's chosen the foolish things in this world to shame the wise. Among 12 ordinary men, Andrew might just be the most 
ordinary of all. But because of that, he's the one that perhaps we could learn the most from. All of us who are just ordinary people too. The question you have to ask yourself tonight is, in your own ordinary way, with whatever gifts God has given to you, have you been serving him, like Andrew, to the best of your ability? And if not, why not? Do you need to make changes in your life this evening? If you do, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.